You're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's a super special day for me because I'm having one of my oldest, I should say longest standing friends on, Jeff Vale. Jeff is a dedicated public servant with a passion for nature and conservation. He's had over three decades of experience in land conservation and natural resource management. He currently serves as the Director of Lands, Minerals, and Geology for the United States Forest Service. In this role, he oversees the management of a vast portion of our nation's land, including national forests and grasslands. Jeff is also deeply committed to purpose-driven initiatives. He's worked toward the President's 3030 initiative to conserve 30% of the nation's lands and waters by 2030. He has witnessed the transformative power of corporate partnership in preserving public lands and water, ensuring their sustainability for generations to come. So now let's just delve into it with Jeff Vail and his career. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Jeff Vail. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be here. I mean, as I said in the opening, we've known each other for years. We were, just for the audience's sake, they should know that we met our junior year. We were studying in Paris on the same program, and we were roommates, apartment mates, uh, with Madame Vesprenne in uh, Paris and have been in each other's lives ever since. <laughs> yes, we should dedicate this entire session to Madame. <laughs> um, I know a lot more than my guests than I usually do about my guests, but tell us, Jeff, about your sort of career journey, your life journey, how you came from this little kid in Maine to where you are today, and maybe like two or three minutes, give us a sort of digest of how you found your way. Well, thanks, Toby, for the invitation and the opportunity. The pathway from the woods and the ocean coastline of Maine to being a, an attorney and then a a senior manager within the USDA Forest Service is, is a bit circuitous, but suffice it to say, I've loved the outdoors and nature since I can early remember and had a passion and curiosity about how people uh, solve problems and how we relate to nature, uh, whether it's recreation, whether it's our water supply, um, how we tap into nature for a variety of goods and services. It, it all uh, flows through a land management agency like the Forest Service that has a multiple use mission and that is is designed to be sustainable uh, for perpetuity. So I started out uh, in a more international vein where I met you and shifted toward law school and had the good fortune to land as an agency counsel for this great uh, mission and had some fascinating work on cleaning up hazardous waste sites, on protecting and conserving land. Um, but I really had a passion for how do we manage people and their relationship to land and do so in partnership with communities, corporations, the broader public. And so that's a brief synopsis. You make it sound so effortless. I'm sure it's not. Are you... I mean, what does that mean? Where does the rubber meet the road? I mean, early on in your career, were you going around to communities and doing town hall meetings? Were you working on election ballots? Were you trying to fight back corporations that were, you know, overreaching? Or what was sort of the day-to-day -day early on and what's the day-to-day -to -day today? Well, of course, as an attorney, the, the posture is often to defend a client that's being challenged. And we're in the middle of a lot of countervailing forces. Um, environmental interests can sometimes challenge land managers for not 
uh, sufficiently protecting wildlife habitat, watersheds, mm -hmm. or favoring timber or mining or, or uh, range ranching industry. And depending upon the politics, you, if you're inside government, you're, you're trying to navigate what the current political pressures are. I think what stood out to me, Toby, is I, uh, I see a way in which we can find common ground around land use, around the environment, around natural resources, particularly as you get closer to the local level. Mm -hmm. So an issue that, that could be resolved uh, at a county level, at a municipal level, it gets much harder at a national scale. Mm -hmm. And I've enjoyed the progression from being council at a national level to working at a local forest level and seeing where partnerships and relationships can, can turn th things around. Um, so my, my uh, pathway, I think, has been an appreciation for those bigger uh, contentious issues, land use, uh, land claims by tribes, uh, hazardous waste cleanups, where common ground was found. And mm -hmm. it requires patience. It requires uh, respect for one another's viewpoints. But I think the land and nature is a space where people can and, and must come together Mm -hmm. And I've seen it happen uh, throughout the country again and again. Yeah, well said. I mean, I talk often on this podcast about the concept of bridging leadership, because I think in this day and age, everything is polarized, even from, you know, the color of a banana can be polarized. And I, mm -hmm. I just think that real leaders actually bridge people together. So what you're just describing is sort of brokering solutions around land management and the, the natural assets of this country it makes sense. I wonder if um, you might talk about the politicization because you are a political in your role. You have been for over 30 years. I marvel at that, having worked at the New York Times for many years and trying to make sure that we were um, right down the middle um, mm -hmm. reporting objective journalism. It's the same kind of challenge, I think. It's it's hard for people to believe that it's possible, but you've mm -hmm. done it. You've been in You've been you've excelled in both Democratic administrations, Republican administrations. Uh, how, how does that happen? Did you learn that by osmosis or by your supervisors or trial and error? I would say it's a mix. Some of it is you learn from your your elders, those who've walked this path before, and there are so many I could point to, both that I work with directly and that are larger models. But I. Um, I would say in terms of my personal exposure, it's a recognition that if we get away from positions where people tend to anchor in and shift more toward a focus on values and first principles, mm -hmm. that's where there's space to see there's commonality. And I'll offer one example, Please. a very contentious land claim involving a tribe on the outskirts of Albuquerque, New Mexico, the city, the county, the landowners, all with a passion for this 10,000 acres that is right up against the Sandia Crest, a big tourist attraction, ski area, major tramway. And where that shift occurred is where we just talked about what matters to everybody who's a party. What are the values at stake here? And what's your relationship to this land? And I'll always forget a woman who led the, the county contingent and who lived in the contested area talking about her recovery from cancer. And it was during her walks through that contested area, that 
really special wilderness that her relationship to the land grew and her, and her health um, rebounded. And mm -hmm. I could notice a shift in the representatives from the tribe. They appreciated her, uh, I would say, heart and soul level appreciation for that land base. Mm -hmm. Obviously, their interest and their history differed, but there was that connection, connecting point. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, with Senator Domenici and the entire New Mexico delegation, uh, a resolution that was enacted into law came into being. There's a, a form of shared management with the tribe. It remains public and open, protected as wilderness for future generations. But that heart conversation around values made all the difference. Really exciting to hear that. Maybe we should step back and you could give our audience a sense of where forestry fits into our government and our representative government more specifically, because as I recall, doesn't it fall under agriculture? That's right. Originally, it was part of the Department of the Interior, like the Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service. The first chief of the Forest Service, Gifford Pinchot, who later became a two-term governor of Pennsylvania, was a close friend of Theodore Roosevelt's had a real passion for conservation. In fact, there was no forestry school at 1900. So he went to France for forestry training mm -hmm. and brought the profession to the States. In the process, he lobbied successfully to get the Forest Service removed from interior, moved over to agriculture, thus a, a more independent, and I would say a little bit less politicized than some of the interior agencies. But originally, the impetus for our national forests was to provide a continuous supply of timber and to protect watersheds. If you look back at some of the devastating clear cutting that happened throughout the Eastern United States, we have very little old growth uh, timber in the Eastern US. Mm -hmm. And there was considerable flooding, soil erosion, just a lot of uh, negative impacts to watersheds and communities. And so that awareness was part of what informed the creation of the National Forest in 1905. Uh, President Roosevelt, using his authority, reserved millions of acres of the public domain uh, as national forests. And now about 200 million acres of the nation's land is in national forest. And just to boil that down, that's the equivalent of the state of California, Oregon, and Washington, but spread out in 43 states in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And that's also, you know, for the climate, you think about carbon sinks and the role that um, that forests play above and beyond just timber and the watershed. So uh, it's great that we're preserving what we have, old or new timber. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the private sector there, the warehousers and other big companies that are the big timber companies. Do they do you, do you have a healthy, positive relationship with them or are you meant to stay neutral with them? How, how do you engage with the private sector? So there's an ongoing timber sale program as part of the Forest Service. At times, it's been pretty robust and active. And in more recent years, the focus has more been on sustainability, maintaining biodiversity. So I think rightfully so, the scope and scale of our timber sale program and our work with those companies has, is not as expansive as it was, but it's, it's definitely still alive and well. Many of the companies you mentioned have major private land holdings. So the uh, wood basket of America, if you will, is really in the southeastern United States. You have longer growing seasons. The geography is more conducive to the kind of uh, large scale commercial timber operations that uh, those companies operate. So there are timber sales, certainly on the national forests. We 
provide over 3 billion board feet of timber per year for forest products uh, off the national forest. And that's well down from a high of close to 12 billion board feet during the uh, 1980s. What about with climate change about the blights and all the different sort of infestations? Is that something that is, are there warning signs out there or do you feel that we have things in control or? We do not have things in control and the warning signs are everywhere. I would offer that in any way you look, whether it be insect infestation and disease uh, throughout different forests, whether it be uh, forest conversion as a, as, out of, as a result of wildfires that are more severe, long-lasting in, in scope and duration, what comes back isn't necessarily the same forest type. And if you lose that forest ecosystem, you've lost it for good. Mm. What also is uh, evident is we've got significant migration and shift of uh, insects, of wildlife, of uh, aquatics, so that uh, habitat ranges are shifting. And we're seeing throughout the U.S. and, and globally uh, devastating impacts to species, um, terrestrial, aquatic, what have you. So in the national forests, you're right, we are a, a major uh, buffer, if you will, against the, the rise in carbon dioxide. And uh, particularly in areas like Southeast Alaska, uh, tremendous um, rainforest that's still uh, robust in terms of the carbon that it stores. These are vital to our future, every bit as important as the Amazon. And our partnerships, our relationships with corporate America, as well as with local communities and states is essential to raising that awareness and making investments that that will serve uh, the greater good. I want to pick up on the international and see who's doing it better, so to speak. But also before that, I wonder, we hear about the rainforest Brazil. We hear about Costa Rica being this amazing country for its green practices. Mm -hmm. But would you say, hazard a guess to say, like, we're kind of at the top of the heap, the middle of the heap, given the vast amount of resources we have? Who someone who's Austrian descent, I think Austria does a pretty good job with maintaining their little country and keeping yes. it green. But who, who are some of the gold standards for forestry conservation and, and growth? Well, definitely you have to look to Scandinavia. I think the, the concept of sustainable forestry is well understood there and practiced throughout Finland, Norway, Sweden. Uh, I would definitely point to Costa Rica, as you said, they long ago opted not to to even have a military and instead invest in uh, biodiversity, uh, ecosystem management, sustainability practices that one visit there and you can appreciate how that investment has paid dividends. Yeah. Um, I would say beyond that, the U.S. is somewhere, uh, given our resources and our wealth, I would argue we're not as um, as invested in long-term sustainability and biodiversity concerns as we should be. We also have one of the greatest land bases of protected public land of any nation mm -hmm. on earth. And so we have good fortune and great opportunity to build upon what we already have. But mm -hmm. I think the current administration's 30 by 30 initiative is a wake up call that we really need to aim high, both in terms of land and water conservation and we have the resources and, and the protected areas to to uh, to move strongly in, in such a direction. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to 30 by 30 right after the break. 
Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, I'm really thrilled to have my college roommate, Jeff Vail, with us. He is, among other things, the uh, Director of Lands, Minerals, and Geology for the United States Forest Service. He's been there for over 30 years. Jeff, um, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the President's 30 by 30 initiative. What What is it and why does it matter? So the President recognized that at a global level, there's a biodiversity convention commitment to moving toward 30% of the global water and land base being in conservation protected status. So what does that mean? It means that uh, that area would be protected from uh, extractive uses, timber, mining, ranching, but also that uh, for waters, commercial fishing would be uh, limited or, or precluded. And it recognizes that we need to do this with some urgency. We're losing our biodiversity at a rate unmatched in history. And the consequences are beyond our understanding. So habitat is key to survival for species and healthy habitat connectivity. So if, for example, we're designating a new national monument, as the president did, around the Grand Canyon or on the front range in Colorado in the last couple of years, those added protections, those added conservation measures are a move toward that 30 by 30 goal. And the habitat that is protected in those areas connects to existing conservation areas and provides space and opportunity for not just existing species to survive, but where there's that uh, climate change induced need to to relocate, mm -hmm. uh, there's space in which to move and do that. Uh, there are many other examples I could point to, not just at the federal level, but it, organizations like the, the Nature Conservancy and Trust for Public Land. And at a local level, many conservancies, some that I'm sure you're very familiar with where you live, yeah. are hugely instrumental in, in uh, adding to that commitment. But like the moonshot that President Kennedy set out that, that led to landing on the moon, you have to aim high and you have to aim toward a, a distant point that we may not reach or may not reach right away. But I think it sets an intention mm -hmm. that uh, other corporate, tribal, state and local entities can can rally around. Yes. And, and also, I would say the young people, which I want to ask you about, if people people want to act and and help address the challenges and the opportunities around our forests what what do you advise them to do i mean they can vote they can campaign but advise them to educate themselves and if so where do you send them do you advise them to think twice about what they consume what what sort of actionable advice do you give to young people in particular i would start wherever you are if your neighborhood needs some attention because trash in the streets or there's some water quality issues, connect with the local community, the local organizations. If you're in an academic setting, there are any number of opportunities to look at ways to, to pursue courses in sustainability, mm -hmm. in clean water, clean air, in uh, land management, if that's your, your passion or interest. I, I think, too, there are any number of programs, uh, youth volunteer, youth employment programs, many of which I've worked with over the years, Student Conservation Association, um, other conservation associations throughout the country, 
various uh, internship programs. We have within the Forest Service a, a called a resource assistant program for recent college and graduate students mm -hmm. to work with us in various capacities for nine months. And after those nine months, you've obtained direct hire authority. So we can bring you into the agency directly without a competitive process. So I, I can't think of anything other than opening your eyes, looking around and noticing what's around you, what's not working, what is unhealthy, what needs attention, whether it be a park or a waterway or um, communities that are suffering because environmental justice issues mm. were uh, disproportionately falling on underrepresented communities, whether in rural areas with tribes or in, in inner cities. There's just a an unlimited number of ways in which to tap into uh, work or volunteer or other uh, mm -hmm. efforts related to the environment. That's fantastic. We've been talking about young people and, you know, forestry sometimes I think suggests to people it's over there, it's far, it's pretty countryside. But as I recall in your stellar career, one chapter was uh, being supervisor for the Angeles National Forest. And I remember you sharing with me back then, if you could share a little bit now about being in a in a forest setting that is at a huge urban center as well. That's not something people necessarily realize. Absolutely. If you're in Los Angeles or San Diego, uh, Phoenix, Denver, Portland, Oregon, uh, these are areas where you literally see the national forests and, and public lands out your window. I lived in downtown Los Angeles and I could see the San Gabriels that I had the, the privilege to manage right out my window. Mm -hmm. And I love that aspect to go from core city to mountains and to realize this is all Los Angeles County. 700,000 acres or 25% of that land base is public land. It's national forest. And over 100,000 acres of that is wilderness where there's no roads, no trails, no structures. Stunning to have bighorn sheep, brown bear, uh, other uh, wildlife right there, mountain lions right there in Los Angeles County. So it's not far away. And even if on the East Coast, you're in New York City or you're Washington, D.C., the connective tissue, as you well know, to waterways, to parkways, to parks at city centers or state parks beyond is not far. And it's all connected. So as the saying goes, we all live downstream of of something. And we need to recognize that connectivity. But I got to stick with it because also, so you have this urban setting and a lot of, um, you know, underprivileged kids in particular. You've been, uh, throughout your life, you've been committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, even before DEI was a, an acronym. What's your take on the state of forestry service and inclusion? And um, I guess, how can it be a catalyst for a larger societal enhancement or improvement around? inclusion if that's even well, a fair question it, it can be and must be a catalyst i would say 30 years ago most of the people in senior management in the forest service looked like me and you and there wasn't a whole lot else uh, today the chief of the forest service is african-american the number two also african-american we have a, a much more diverse leadership uh, presentation than we used to that said our workforce doesn't yet reflect where we should be if you look at the larger American public mm -hmm. and the amount that we're investing in uh, reaching more diverse communities for uh, not just who we hire, who works with us, but who we partner with. 
we can be intentional about working with uh, non-traditional partners or more fledgling organizations that may not have the capital of some of the big names, but that can be highly effective and successful. And so we've put a lot more energy into those sorts of partnerships. I would say, too, being intentional about new programs where we can hire more diverse uh, workforce is vital. When I was Angeles National Forest Supervisor, we built out a, a field ranger program, a bilingual early 20s program, so that we would have a presence, a greater visibility on the forest where uh, large sections of that forest, the primary language spoken by by uh, visitors is Spanish. And so meeting people where they are, recognizing who your uh, constituents are and reaching people who would love to be out in nature, but may not necessarily feel welcome or may not see themselves uh, is absolutely essential. So who we hire, how we pursue relationships with uh, corporations, mm -hmm. with community organizations, it all matters. And those investments are ongoing, I would say, Without question, we're, we're more focused on DEI as, as an important way of doing business than ever before. Cool. Are there any uh, brands, organizations, individuals, corporations you might want to give a shout out to as sort of what success looks like in partnering with the Forestry Service? We've worked for a number of years with Coca-Cola, with Disney, with REI. I, I mentioned all three of those because they were partners of ours on the Angelus for Coca-Cola, the effort toward water replenishment and having a, a net neutral impact, mm -hmm. given that water is their primary component, has been a driving force for years. And they've been great to work with, a really strong partner. I would mention as well, Disney's efforts to invest in reforestation after many of the major fires that have impacted California in the mm -hmm. last 15 to 20 years mm -hmm. has been... Uh, noteworthy and, and deserves recognition. REI has worked uh, in many different ways with us and in interior land management agencies. For us, they were a key partner in establishing a, a shuttle system free from a, a recently constructed metro line in LA, two trailheads on the forest. Wow. And that investment has continued and is is really how we succeed at connecting people to nature. We can't do it alone. We don't have the, the funding levels, but corporate America does have that added capacity and can move much more quickly than we can. Mm -hmm. So their their investments as a share of how we do business and deliver our programs is growing and is absolutely essential. That's exciting to hear. I'm a big believer in the role of the private sector, given their deep bench strength and talent pools and pockets. Mm -hmm. um, you remind me of our childhood and Smokey the Bear. He was kind of the iconic symbol of the Forestry Service. And I wonder um, if there's, is he, has he being, has he been refreshed or is there a face of the Forestry Service now that uh, we should know? Smokey has been part of the uh, Ad Council campaign since the 1940s when he came into being. And, and you're right, that is the the uh, really the brand identifier for the Forest Service going back 75 years. We are indebted to that brand and that message for many reasons, raising people's awareness about being careful when they're outdoors, mm -hmm. uh, paying attention to what it means to uh, clean up after yourself and, and, and leave no trace, if you will, when you're recreating in the outdoors. 
one of the things Smokey also messaged probably too effectively is that fire is bad. And so the agency mission for many decades was to suppress fire by 10 a.m. every day. Well, what that did is disrupt natural ecological processes. Many forests depend upon fire. Wildlife habitat is is critical to fire being present on the land. Mm. And through that suppression, fuel loads built up. And so when fires would begin, then the uh, scope and scale of those fires was far greater than it would be if you were actively managing and thinning forests the way a fire would naturally. Uh, so smoky remains relevant and the importance of being aware and, and mindful in nature is always valuable, but we've had to learn um, by hard experience that suppressing fire is is uh, relevant and important in some areas and in other areas actively burning the forest or letting uh, some fires burn safely is is also part of how you repair and, and sustain healthy uh, forest ecosystems. Yeah, I think that that message has got out more and more. We all know the concept of a controlled burn now and that that's a healthy part of, it can be a healthy part of forestry management. So, mm-hmm. um, well, thanks for the reflection on Smokey. Um, my last question for you, my friend, is pearls of wisdom you've gleaned throughout your career and your life about um, how one such as yourself goes about finding a purpose-driven career, a purpose-driven life that uh, creates the legacy that you have? It's a great question. Everybody has their own motivations and their own passions. What I have come to appreciate over time is if I sit with people and circumstances that may seem difficult or may seem uh, intractable and ask questions and listen and pay attention to how others are approaching situations. It's not unlike rafting or paddling down a waterway and pulling over to the shore and watching how others are maneuvering or reflecting on how you made it as far as you did or how you're going to move as you progress down that waterway. If I or others slow down and pay attention, ask questions, notice how others are navigating their lives, then space starts to open up. There starts to be possibilities where all you see before are uh, impediments or barriers. And I don't want to get too Pollyannish, but there's almost no problem that doesn't have a, a possible way forward. I think the other thing to appreciate and uh, our um, Native American communities have understood this from time immemorial is to take the long view. And we're here for only a short time, but if we make even a modest positive impact, and it could be just in terms of our relationships, where we may still have disagreements, but we're on better terms. Mm-hmm. But it could also be we partner together on building a new trail or <clears throat> investing in removing invasives from a waterway that will restore natural habitat and increase uh, water availability. There are so many different levels at which we can make progress mm-hmm. and recognize that just as we've built off of the investments and accomplishments of others, there's that space to do so and move the needle in our time. I love that. And also with respect to nature in particular, if you can help steward it, then the ripple effect becomes even greater, right? Because future generations will be able to enjoy it and hopefully equally steward it. Um, I'm also, I know I said that was the last question, but I'm also reminded that as we speak, 
Killers of the Flower Moon movie is about to come out. And I read that book and thought it was really quite amazing. I don't know how the film will be. I don't know if you've read the book or know the film, but I think it's going to shine a lot of light on um, the Native American community and the way that that we've dealt or treated them throughout our history. And in the film and the book, particularly around the property that they were put on when they were relocated. And that's where all the um, the oil and gas assets are. And I'll leave it at that for those who haven't seen the book or the movie, but uh, I think it's going to create a teachable moment for a lot of Americans. I believe without question. Yeah, I th- I think we're continuously learning or uh, relearning our history, and yeah. it's not all pretty, and it's not all um, as we would like to to believe about our our past. But it's vital to see the window into where we've been and and to learn some lessons. And certainly, tr- traditional ecological knowledge that tribes possess continues to inform our, our land management practices and, and makes us better. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing the movie and uh, embracing whatever realities it, it, it shines a light on. Likewise. Jeff Vale, thank you so much for joining us today on The Caring Economy. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Vale, the Director of Lands, Minerals, and Geology for the United States Forest Service. Your tax dollars at work. Keep up the good work, Jeff. <laughs> thank you, Toby. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at TUsnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.